The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is powered by DEN Certifications. You want to deepen your practice or supplement your knowledge for your day-to-day job? You'd be surprised to know how many certifications we do offer. All levels of Reiki, intuitive healing, compassion, animal communications, and of course, our deep 400-hour meditation teacher training program. Go to denmeditation.com and look under certifications for more information. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, the founder of Den Meditation and your host. We have David G here today. This is an amazing conversation. He's a globally recognized mind, body, health, and wellness expert. He has taught meditation to so many people, including the Marines, including police force. He's really incredible. If you actually ever go on to any of the places to get to apps where you can get meditations, you've probably taken a meditation from him. He's written many books and his latest sacred powers we actually talk a lot about in this. We really cover everything. His journey himself is pretty interesting. He had this insane aha moment that he's going to talk about right in the beginning, which I suggest you listen to because it's very spiritual and crazy. And any of us would be like, holy crap. And it sent him on a whole journey to India where he goes on a search for this guru. I mean, he went up and down all of India, which is a very large country. And he finds this guru in a jungle that has all of his life, his past lives written down, his present life and anything he's going to do in the future, including when he's going to die. So he knows all of this information. And one of the things he said to him is, you are going to be an international uh, meditation teacher, and you are going to be an international writer, and your books will be translated in many languages. And at that time, he's like, are you kidding me? I work in mergers and acquisitions in New York. No, thank you. And that's exactly where he is and who he is today. And he has so much to share. Plus, he's just fun and a really cool guy. I think you guys are going to love this conversation. We do talk about the power of choice, which ultimately affects everything and how we are all made of energy. But the power of choice and the fact that if we could just shift something and change the vibration we're working on, every moment is really choice. The positive, the negative. To do something, not to do something. To accept something, not to accept it. So it is an incredible conversation. It's very empowering. There is so much to learn, and I hope you really enjoy it because I love talking to him. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we finally like locked it in. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And I mean, it's amazing everything you've done. So like, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And I mean, one of the things I kind of wanted to start chatting with you about is, you know, and I know you talk about it a lot, but you know, you, your aha moment, your moment, you call it the butterfly moment. It's an aha moment for a lot of people. It's a moment that wakes people up. You know, you came from corporate America. I was the same. Um, But yours is, and I love it because in the book, you describe it as a whisper. And I'm like, that was not a whisper. (laughs) Yours did not feel like a whisper to me at all, but I would love for you to tell it because it is, it's an incredible story. Yeah, it's a little kooky. You know, I, I, I don't know that everyone needs to have the profound, you know, lightning bolt into the head. Right. But I think that, um, I think pain can be an amazing motivator. 
And I think that um, everyone has that. It can be really nuanced. So if they're not paying attention, you know, you're just about to have that moment and suddenly someone says, hey, what time is it? And you're like, you look down to look at your watch and you know, it, the moment passes. Um, and maybe it comes back 10 years later. Um, uh, but for me, it was, um, you know, I was deep in the corporate world and I was working those 18 hour days and I was working seven days a week. Um, and my home life was pretty much non-existent. Every, every other aspect of my life was really non-existent. Those are sort of like sideshows. And um, I was so devoted and so dedicated to everything that, that I was doing. And um, really, I think I needed a really powerful pattern interrupt yeah. to, like, to zap me um, to that. Uh, because at the time, I didn't know there were tools. And at the time, I really felt like, well, this is it. And then I'm going to die. You know, I'll, I'll wake up with a knot inside of me, you know, uh, every single day. And I'll hold on to that knot until I wash it away with a cocktail at the end of the day. Or two. <laughs> and, um, and that'll be my life and then I'll die. Um, but it was really, um, you know, about six months, five months before 9-11. Uh, I was working on the 82nd floor of Tower 2. And uh, just a few months before then, um, my partner and I, Glenn Rock, uh, had been invited out of, you know, to close our company and incorporate it into this other company, essentially like sell out to this, to this guy who we later found out it's never who we wanted to work for. Um, so here we were, we were sort of like coaxed out um, by um, one of the darkest individuals we ever met. But in that process, you know, we left the World Trade Center. So it's sort Amazing. of like... You know, got out of there, and uh, so now I, I sort of like live this life that's a combination of survivor's remorse and knowing that the clock is ticking, and I have to to really show up and 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 do something because life is so fragile. But you were like legitimately not happy though. So before your aha moment, you know, I, you know, I was I was uh, I was empty. I was living an empty life. There was like a total void inside my heart. Um, and to be specific about it, you know, I, I was walking past this row of boxes, cardboard boxes that people were living in, and a guy literally um, grabbed my pant leg and pulled me down into this, like, really intense eye-to-eye -eye contact um, this far away. And uh, normally, you know, in my previous days or months or years before then, I would have just shaked my leg and, you know, get out of here and kept walking. But in this moment, I suddenly like stayed there. And um, I, I, I'll remember his eyes, you know, his crystalline blue eyes forever. And we like gazed at each other. And then he, then he said, what's going to be on your tombstone? Which is a fairly reflective moment, you know, <laughs> like I, I was expecting like, hey, you got an extra 10, you know, or something along those lines. Right. When someone asks you your reason for being on this planet that you don't know, um, and that was an aha moment for me. In that moment, everything stopped. You know, you know what it's like, lower Manhattan, you know, suddenly there was no sound of traffic. Suddenly there were, there were no people talking. There was no noise. There was total silence and the entire sidewalk just sort of like sort of like the red sea party you know just everything just like 
and it was just me and him, the only people in existence, actually the only eyes in existence. And um, we had almost like a telepathic conversation where he asked me a couple of other things and I reached him into my pocket to hand him some money because I figured, oh, this is just like the setup. And he actually pushed my hand, he pushed my pocket really tightly with his hand and blocked my hand from even pulling any money out. And he said, it's not about the money. The answer is in the stars. You know, and then he, then he and this is all without speaking. This is like in that, you know, so that's like, for me, that's an aha moment. And I've had a couple of those, you know, butterfly moments since then. I've probably had about five or six of those. Well, definitely six. And, uh, but that was it. You know, I went home that night and uh, told, told my wife what happened. Um, and I staggered after that. I didn't just like walk away. Uh, you know, I walked about 20 feet, sat down on the steps of an apartment building like, that was like 20 feet away. And I was just, tears were coming down. I wasn't crying. The tears were streaming down my face. My, my knees were weak. My legs were weak. I was hyperventilating. It was like, you know, and it felt like an hour. It was probably a minute. What do you think was physically happening to you? Because interesting, I've said that too. There's been times where I'm like, there's like such a release that I'm like, I was crying, but it wasn't crying. Like, and you're trying to explain it to someone. I'm like, there's like zero sadness with it, but it was like almost uncontrollable. Like the biggest crying I could have ever have done without crying. Yeah. You know, they've done studies um, that show that like tears of sadness are different than tears of anger which are different than tears of joy. There's actually a different chemical composition in there. Wow. So, um, you know, there was, no, there was no sadness. I think this was, it was giant relief that, I don't know, like I think my entire physiology and my energetic body, you know, at the same, my emotional state certainly, was suddenly like, oh, you don't have to try so hard doing this other thing. You know, I think it was like, maybe it, they were like tears of permission to step into a better version of myself. It was like the moment you finally acknowledged it and it was probably like relief, like subconscious relief. <laughs> right. I think, you know, I think you're right. I think there's like, you know, we're having these inner dialogues that we're not paying attention to and maybe they're so subconscious that, that we're not even aware of them, but they're happening. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, fucking thank God you're finally listening. We've been screaming at you. <laughs> <laughs> so you go home and you tell your wife... I go home and she's like, you need to quit that job. Oh, good for her. He suggested, you know, things like that along the years when I would say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working for nothing. I'm just, I'm killing myself. I don't even know what I'm doing. Um, I was in mergers and acquisitions. So it's really just all about combining, consolidating, cutting, you know, finding efficiencies um, and without the human element, you know, without the personal um, aspect, paying really very, very little attention to like, What's the, what's the damage being done? And, um, but she was like, you, you need to quit that. You need to quit that job. And I was like, okay, done. Now what? And she goes, well, there's this guy, Deepak Chopra. He's doing a meditation retreat in Oxford, England, and you should go to that. And I thought she said, um, I never heard of Deepak Chopra. So I thought she was talking about Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> You're like, is there wine? <laughs> I was like, a director is movies. I don't get that. And honestly, I never had any idea who Deepak was until the day I met him. And um, and I said, okay, uh, I'm fairly obedient. You know, I love. I said, I'll, I'll do that. And so I went to this meditation retreat. There's supposed to be like a thousand people there. There were like 50 uh, because it was after 9/11. Nobody was flying. Mostly Europeans. I think there were five people from the states. And um, 
we were doing like really, really deep meditate because it was such a small group. We were just spending a lot of time just rounding, you know, meditate for like half hour, do like five minutes of sun salutations, dive in again for another half hour, five minutes of sun salutations, dive in for another half hour. So we're doing it. And like on the third day, I was like, oh my God, you know, my heart, which had felt like a, a, a white linen cloth that had been so deeply immersed in like black ink. So it felt like it was like being draped through a rushing stream, you know, just like being cleaned and cleared, cleansed and lightened. Um, and like on the third day, I had this emotion that I was so unfamiliar with called joy. You know, I was like, I haven't felt joy in like 20 years. That's what this is. Finally, so joy. When you felt it, what did it remind you of? Well, it was this, I, I guess I had been living for such an extended period of time with this heavy weight on my chest, on my heart, you know, and it was suddenly like my heart was suddenly breathing again. It's like my heart came alive and I could feel joy. Um, I could feel forgiveness for myself and for other people that I was holding grudges against. It was like a real um, awakening catharsis or cathartic awakening. One of those two. It works. (laughs) (laughs) And so... So that was it. I suddenly just felt so much lighter. And I, um, I guess I had been holding my breath for, for about a decade. Uh, so suddenly I was like breathing. So physically I could feel myself just lightening and, and loosening up. And uh, when that uh, retreat came to an end, I was like, actually I planned this on like the second to last day. I was like, <laughs> I, went to the, I went to the U.S. Embassy <laughs> in, 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 uh, in London. Yeah. I was like, how do I get a visa? How do I get a visa to go to India? And they were like, well, you can't get it here. <laughs> so I had to, go to, had to go to like an emergency visa guy. Um, and I headed off to India, uh, you know, in search of the guru. I was like, that's it. I'm as light as a feather now. And now I must find the true answers of life. Are you someone who's always kind of done things extreme, like growing up? I have always been um, an extremist. I have like two speeds, you know, full throttle, 200% or off. Are you still like that or through all the work now? You know, I still am like that. Um, but now I only like do things that I love. Like, right. uh, I put everything through a filter. And so really everything f- flows through my filter, which is nourishment or distraction. And if it's not nourishment, I don't do it. If a person's not nourishing, I don't do it. You know, and, and a lot of times I don't know. You can let me know later if I'm nourishing or a distraction. Yeah, <laughs> Just so, wait, wait till the end of the conversation. Yeah, you're so nourishing. It's, really, <laughs> it's, it's beautiful to be talking to you. So. Um, but I want to jump on something that you said, which I want to talk about later, but it's perfect for now, you know, because in your book, Sacred Powers, which is amazing that the, you give people kind of these easy steps on how to actually start creating their own awakening and how to start realizing that we all have this potential and this ability. And in one of the paths of rebirth, you talk a lot about forgiveness. But the reason I want to bring it up now is because I thought what you said was so interesting when you were talking about how all of a sudden this lightness was coming about you in all these meditations when you were rounding at Deepak's um, workshop and how all of a sudden you just felt forgiveness for people and this. I think there's just something really interesting there that sometimes, you know, we all talk about how to work on forgiveness and for some people it's very difficult. And then for some people it's very easy. So talk about a little bit of what you went through and just the fact sometimes it's the energy clearing and the energy levels and where you are spiritually that actually makes forgiveness a much easier thing. Yeah, well, I feel very strongly that a lot of the emotions that we extend to the outside world 
um, whether that's kindness, whether that's love, whether that's forgiveness, whether that's compassion, um, if we're not actually hitting ourselves first with that wave, or we don't have to complete it, but we have to be reflecting on it or working on it. You know, that if, uh, if I'm not self-compassionate and compassion is rooting for someone's suffering to end, you know, it's empathizing with it and rooting for their suffering to end. But if I'm not rooting for my own, if I'm not empathizing with my own pain, with my own actions, with my own past words, um, and then not rooting for me to heal and move beyond those, it's a little bit of an imposter syndrome if I'm instead then forgiving someone else. If I don't know how to do it myself, then that's, you know, if I'm acting kind or acting compassionate or acting forgiving to somebody else, but I'm not really applying it to myself, then it is an act. And then it's absurd to think realistically that, um, that they're going to get it. It's absurd to think that, um, and I feel really, really strongly uh, about this, that if we're just like, oh my God, I'm so, this, this tragedy that's befallen these poor people, I'm so, I'm so compassionate, I'm so sorry for it, and we're just like throwing sympathy out you know, in, into the world, and then we are still holding ourselves so, such steep judgment and such like, I'll never, I can't believe I said those words, I can't believe I did that thing, I'm such an idiot, I'm such a fool, I'm such a loser, um, my whole life would have been better, you know, when we start like playing the whole victim thing, you know, this disconnect really starts to build. And I think um, there's a permission um, aspect uh, to that. You know, there's a, there's a self-permission that needs to unfold. You need to actually give yourself permission, which means you don't have to like, okay, I forgive myself for everything. <laughs> but if you can at least uh, begin the process of loosening your grip on those things that, you know, we've all got them. We've all got suitcases. Some of us have steamer trunks filled with this stuff. And some of us, you know, they're carry-ons. But, you know, <laughs> everyone's got... No one's empty-handed. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, and so I think, you know, once you can get to that state of permission, self-permission, um, then it's like, you know what? I was doing my best. I think I was doing my best. And, if I, and I'm sorry for the outcome. I think, I think you have to go through that process of really, you know, apologizing to yourself. Like, I was doing my best. Maybe I was a little kid and I was trying to, you know, who knows what my trauma was. Or maybe, you know, I, I made this decision that moved my life suddenly in this other direction and I've been regretting it or beating myself up for it. And how did I get here? Um, but if you, if you can start the process, and I'll speak for myself, you know, I began that process suddenly saying, you know what, all these choices I made, they were the best choices at the time with everything I had to work with. Um, I have better things to work with now, so let me make more conscious choices. And I think once, once someone can get to that state, um, it's so much easier to truly then empathize or have compassion or forgive somebody else because suddenly, you know, um, a lot of times we forgive people and like we're up here and they're down there. That's not well, you were a jerk. I don't do that, of course, but you were a jerk. And so I forgive you. And I think forgiveness always has to come from the same plane. Ideally, oneness from, from, this, this, from this union state, this yogic state. Um, but if I'm thinking, well, that poor, that poor fool, you know, they said that thing. I never say that thing or they did that thing. What, if, you know, what an idiot. Um, that is not really 
it's not really forgiveness. Um, and it's, it's condescension at best. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we can say, oh my God, shared humanity. I've totally fucked up like that. I totally, I, I, I'm such a, you know, I'm, I'm so on your same exact, you know, plane. Uh, then it's real. Then, then true forgiveness can flow. So I think first you have to be willing to um, ask yourself, given what I know, would I choose differently? And if you would, then you can proceed to the next, you know, space, which is, you know, am, am I sorry for that? And if you're truly sorry and you would choose differently, I think everybody's entitled at that point, you know, to a fresh shot. Even if it's like, you know, 12 times a charm, um, <laughs> a lot of times we can't get out of our own way. Um, but when we can, when we can suddenly say, you know what, I screwed up on the 10th time too, but I, I think I'm actually getting it now. And that's what I believe spirituality is. You know, I believe it's, it's, it's that continued evolution, not perfection, but evolution, that growth, that willingness to, to try one more time to see if we can be a little better expression. So it's funny because I wanted to talk to you about that. So your definition of spirituality is kind of human self-evolution, like of within your own spirit, like within your own self. Uh, my definition of spirituality um, has as its foundation that we are flawed. We're flawed humans. We're mortal. We're, we're sealed in this flesh casing for the span of a lifetime. And we're going to say things we want to take back as we're saying them. You know, they're like, come back. But we're just blowing them out. We say things to be hurtful and we are successful. Uh, we scorch the village on occasion. Uh, we do things that were just like so thoughtless. Um, and that's the human condition. We do great stuff also. Yeah. But we're, you know, we're, we're mortal. We're mortal and flawed and human. And then there's this like best version of ourselves, like up here. That's the part of us that always says the right thing. We know what it's like. We've all been in flow. We've all been in the zone. You know, we said that, you know, hashtag nailed it. You know, it's like the perfect thing in the perfect moment with the perfect outcome, you know, spontaneous right thought, spontaneous right speech and, uh, or spontaneous right action. And so those moments, you know, are, are within us. They're not, they're not separate from us because we've been them. Um, and so I think that, you know, this magnificent divine version of us exists up here. And so my definition of spirituality is the journey that we take emotionally, spiritually, you know, or, or at least when you want to say spiritually, um, energetically, um, vibrationally from this flawed being to that magnificent expression of ourselves. And it's not a one way trip. The true spiritual journey is, is that like, oh, that was just amazing, and then bring it back in. So I think, you know, the spiritual journey is like touching that best expression and integrating it, touching that best expression and then integrating it and getting a little better, uh, being a little more impeccable with our words, being a little more purposeful with our actions, being a, a little more perhaps reflective um, with our choices. And, you know, it's, I think as long as we are willing to grant ourselves that opportunity to just keep, you know, I'm just going to try again. Hopefully today's better than yesterday, or hopefully I'm better than I was 10 minutes ago. That may be a little too much pressure. Um, maybe, maybe I'm better right now and, you know, in this month than I was right. in this month. Um, I think that's, that's spirituality. So when people say like, oh, that person's not spiritual, you know, I would caution against that. I don't believe in spiritual hierarchy. You know, because we're, we're all coming back to that tatvamasi, that same, you know, I am you, you are, yep. you are that, I am that. Um, 
And so it's a journey. I think, you know, the, the whole spiritual context is a journey. And if we're, if you're, we're willing to just keep going to the place of growth and development and learning and evolution, um, then we're on the spiritual path. And if we're sort of like, it's okay, I got it, I'm <laughs> set, you know, then <laughs> I think yeah, maybe there's a lot more work to be done there. I was going to say, those are always the people who never have it. <laughs> um, but I love like bringing all that into just what you're talking about, forgiveness, and it is true acceptance of your own mortality, like you said, of being human and being in these bodies and being in a place of knowing that you are flawed. And like we said, some of us have had more shit than others, but we are all flawed. And that for a lot of people is the hardest part is actually taking, you know, the camera or the eyeballs and turning it inward and being able to accept that part of them, to accept the part that is not quote unquote perfect, whatever that means, or is flawed because like, I think you said, like that's where the beauty comes from when you can accept it in yourself and see it then it's not almost even about forgiveness because you just totally understand it to begin with. Right. It's so, it's so perfect what you just said. You know, it, 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 ha- it must start with that acceptance because you can't take the next step if you're not willing to own what you've done. You can't say, oh, I'll do better the next time if you're not willing to say, you know what? I fucked up. Right. I totally blew it. I totally blew it. Let me own it and let me really do better. But if we're not like, well, it wasn't so bad, they can get over it, well, then that person can't really take any kind of evolutionary stuff. Oh, my God, just your words. I've heard so many people say that, and it makes me cringe every time when they're like, whatever, that's who I am, they can get over it. And I'm always like, mm. and obviously it's not my place to say anything, but it, those are really like, those are more fighting words than people realize. They are, them's fighting words. Them's fighting words. And what we have to internalize is say like, Oh, uh, where, where am I like that? What, what aspect of my life do I swagger so much that I'm not even listening? Because um, there, there, there have to be at least, you know, for me, there have to be at least a couple of thousand areas where I'm like, oh, I'm definitely not owning that. But I don't think you can step into your power without owning everything that's brought you to this moment. And so like when people, you know, say like, it's all good. It's like, well, are you just glossing over everything? When you say it's all good, do you mean you have embraced all of the shit? You know, if you've embraced all the shit, well, then, yeah, then it's all good. But if you're like, there is no shit. It's all just rainbows and dolphins and mermaids and unicorns. Well, then it's like, then, then, then that's seriously the, the most, you know, repressed emotional being that could possibly be. It's funny. And then there's the opposite of the blamer. Like, I mean, and look, and I always hate even bringing this up because when you've had some really gnarly shit happen in your life, it's hard. Like, again, it's hard to not understand why someone wouldn't want to blame it. I mean, that can be so difficult, but from the same thing, it's like you can go and pretend it never happened or you can just dwell on it happening and not accept in that regard too. And then either way, you're stuck in, you're never stuck in you're just stuck somewhere. You're never able to kind of go with the flow because you're holding on to something. But it's how, I mean, I'd love to hear A, your perspective on that, but B, how do you deal with that? Because it is so hard when someone really is in the fucking shit, like they're in it. It is so hard to tell them to just, you know, accept and own it and know that that brought them to where they are. Yeah. Well, you know, it's harder for some than others. And as well, it's harder uh, depending on what's going on in your life mm-hmm. uh, or what's happened in your life. 
and like that's why we can't like you know, 7.6 billion people on the planet we're not in competition we can't be in competition because you don't know what's in anyone else's head or life or what what's in their cells even you know what experience traumatized them or 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 guided them in another direction but there's a in ayurveda there's this uh, there are these concepts um you know in the in Ayurveda, there's this concept of, of Agni. Agni is uh, A-G-N-I. You know, it's, that, it's, the, it's the fire. It's our digestive fire. Of course, we have it physically. Every time we eat something, our, you know, it's inside of us. It cooks that food and you know, chews on it, digests it. We absorb all the nutrients from that food. And we ideally, if everything's working correctly, you know, close the loop and let go of what no longer serves us. So we know how physically how it works. We know how, how it works on every level. <laughs> right. It works on every level, but emotionally it's the same exact thing. Yeah. So if we're in some type of engagement with another person or with another situation, if our internal emotional agni, our emotional digestive fire is burning brightly, which means that we are really listening, listening to the full thing, not finishing someone's words or not saying, oh, I know what they're going to say. But if we're really listening and hearing in that context, um, if we're chewing on their words, if we have a high level of emotional intelligence and we're also absorbing you know, their emotions and their body language and like, what's the energy that's being created here or being passed back and forth uh, between us, if your digestive fire is really, really bright, what's left over is, it's called ojas, O-J-A-S, sweet vital nectar. That's like the byproduct when we are like really engaging at a high vibrational level emotionally. And um, when our digestive fire uh, feels like there's like wet leaves on the fire, um, or it's you know more gas coming out of the barbecue than flames, then we're not actually digesting the experience at a higher level. And what's left over is AMA, AMA, toxic residue. So we can always like ask ourselves the question, like after we've done something, doesn't have, we don't have to be like brilliant. We don't have to be like Einstein before the, before the thing happens. Um, but after the thing happens, after we send the email, after we send the text, you know, after we leave a room, you know, when you walk out of the room, are people saying, oh my God, don't go. Or are they saying, don't let the door hit you on the way out? <laughs> and so like we can ask ourselves after we have left any kind of encounter, even if it's just an encounter with ourselves where we're sitting in, in traffic, which is something that for Southern Californians we, we may do a lot of, you know, but ask ourselves, did I just leave behind Ojas, sweet vital nectar, or did I just leave behind Ama? And I believe that if we left behind toxic residue, it's our obligation to go back and say, oh, excuse me, you know, apologize, or go back into the room and say, I think I might have left a pile of poop in here, but don't worry. I have a, you know, I have a little, you know, poop bag, and I'm just going to come in and take it away. Because a lot of times we think, well, I was a jerk, but they deserved it. Or I was a jerk, and, um, but they'll get over it. Or I was a jerk, and they didn't really even notice it. So I think when you're putting your head on the pillow at night and you go like, was I a jerk? Probably you are, you know, because otherwise you wouldn't be asking, asking the question asking yourself that question. Um, so that's what I use a lot as my, um, you know, as my after the fact moment. Did I leave Ojas or did I leave Ama? Sweet vital nectar or toxic residue? And I think that um, 
you know, we do it all the time. Maybe we're a little harsh in an email. Maybe we're a little curt or a little dismissive in a conversation. Maybe we're a person's pouring their heart out for us. And we're like, you know, I, I wasn't really even paying attention to them. I wasn't, I was thinking about something I'm going to do in like two hours. Um, so I think in those moments, how beautiful it is to go back and say, Hey, you know what? You were like so open hearted and I was just, you know, I, I was just closed. I, I was so unpresent. So, um, are you willing to replay that for me? Are you willing to like, like, let's go, you know, we have the ability to go back and repair stuff. And a lot of times it's too embarrassing to do that. You know, we're thinking, oh, they didn't really get it. Um, but the reality is, what's the harm in getting a little vulnerable and coming back in and saying, I was a bit of a fool. I also think it's about self-growth in that way too. Like it's, it doesn't even matter whether they got it, didn't get it, forgive you or didn't forgive you. It's about like you taking ownership for what you know you did, which I love. But right. And, and sometimes, you know, the person's dead and then we can't go back in. You know, sometimes that person has moved away or it's been 20 years. You know, I don't want to receive an email from someone that says 20 years ago, <laughs> I was a dick to you. And I'm like, really? I, I forgot it. Now, I've, now I haven't forgotten, but I have moved on. That, you know, it didn't. So I think, I think a lot of times we have to make that peace within ourselves. Um, but if we're, you know, working with people on a daily basis, you don't want to, you know, everyone's harboring grudges. Everyone's taking stuff, you know. Uh, For sure. You know, and so since we know that we're all a little too, you know, a little too thin-skinned about stuff um, and we're harboring resentments, why not? Like, let that stuff go. Just, you know, release it or work on releasing. Well, a running theme that you talk about a lot, and you just did it, is choice. It's like the simplicity of choice. Like, one of the sentences you say is you can choose grievance or miracle. You know, you can, and, and in my mind, too, it's like you can choose to breathe through a moment or not. You can choose to support an idea or not to support an idea. You can choose, like you said, you can choose to leave the sweet nectar or you can leave the toxic mold. So I find that so interesting that when so much of these gigantic concepts can actually be boiled down to these moments of choice, which then brings you back all the way around to like self-empowerment, having that strength within you to make what seems like such an easy choice. So how do you start? And like you said, some people it's easier than others because some people either are there or just naturally have that. And some people just struggle to have that self-empowerment to know that they even can make that choice. Or it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier of, if some people have had like really hard lives and we, and you probably, cause you deal with this all the time, can see it so clearly. It's that moment of that shift of when they're willing to make the choice of seeing it differently and seeing, well, all that brought me to here. And this is a good thing. How do you start helping people realize like it's a simple choice and it's what is it that needs a shift so people can start making just a choice? I think there are two components. One is that, you know, the, um, there's a certain fear. Yeah. Um, you know, one is a fear of that. I just don't want to acknowledge that, you know, that I had a choice. I want to like put it out of my hands and say, well, look, look what the universe has visited upon me. And I want to just like be comfortable, you know, uh, with that, because that takes, you know, takes the, really the burden off of me. But if you do that, that's okay. But if you do that, then you can't take the credit for the next step. And I think mm. if we just assume, you know what? All those past moments, you didn't do, no one does anything on their own. No one thrives or succeeds or blows the world away on their own. It's a co-creation. 
you know, and, you know, no one struggles. You know, we have to, there's a, every, everything is, is a co-creation in that process. And I think we all need to, you know, grieving is real. You know, we're losing stuff is real. And, and that pain over loss is, 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 is absolutely real. But how long are we going to use that as the reason why I can't now step forward? So I believe that, you know, and I've said this before, you know, everyone needs to visit the land of hurts and wounds, but nobody needs to live there. Right. You know, rent, don't buy. <laughs> we all need to go to that place and go like, oh my God, my heart hurts so much. So spend some time there. But if like six months later, you're still using that as the excuse why you can't do something else. Um, and another component is this, is, is this fear of showing up and appearing weak. I'll never forget, it was during the, um, during the 2016 uh, um, primary when um, you know who this guy is, governor of New Jersey, um, Chris Christie. <clears throat> he was on TV and they, you know, he, was, he was still like running, you know, they were like the 20 Republican candidates. And I'll never forget this. He was like on TV, he had said something stupid and he was like, listen, um, I don't hold back. If something comes into my head, I say it. And I was, in that moment, I thought, like, really? Like, is that meant to be, like, a sign of strength or, or a sign of, like, um, mindlessness? You know, certainly not mindful. It's, you know, it's, it's essentially not acknowledging that whatever flows into us then goes through this incredible, you know, um, processor um, or metabolizer, and then we get to either not respond or respond or respond in a certain way. Um, and so... You know, it's, it's not about what happens to us because crazy stuff happens to everybody. And, you know, if you were born, guess what? Your parents will die. And if you had kids, guess what? Horrible stuff may befall them, whether that's, you know, they got, made, they got bullied at school, you know, or whether, you know, someone broke their heart. Um, you know, if you have a pet, you'll probably outlive it. Uh, you know, like we can go, you know, if you have money, you probably, there's one time where you made a really bad decision about it. If you don't have money, you probably blame somebody else for where you, your situation, you know, we can go on and on with that. But I think whatever comes into us, we are blessed with this, you know, this mind, this intellect and the ability to then respond in a way that's maybe more thoughtful. And so I believe that coming back to like choice making, everybody's got a choice. Some people have more expanded choices than others. You know, I don't believe like everyone has infinite possibilities and there are no hardships and like too bad, get over it. Um, you know, that's on, that's on one extreme. And the, on the other extreme is this stuff happened to me and, um, you know, these are the cards I've been dealt. It's like, all right, well, play a new hand, write a new chapter turn the page, see if we can get to this new space where you can then make a better choice. And maybe it's a baby step. But if we're always pointing at that for the reason that this doesn't work, you know, or that this isn't happy or this isn't fulfilled, how could we ever then when we make a brilliant move, you know, how can we celebrate that? So I believe we can always move from like a, from a, from a grief state, you know, a lost state, um, to a celebration state, um, from grief to gratitude, you know, essentially. And, I, and, and gratitude is a really important part of my life, and I spend a lot of time uh, myself. I, you know, I teach people to do it as well, but I spend a lot of time 
uh, with myself because we know science is now proving the part of the brain that would otherwise hold, otherwise hold a grudge uh, sort of like stops firing when we awaken the other part of our brain that's actually more engaged in you know feeling grateful about something do you is that part of your like morning routine is it daily for you it is you know my morning my morning routine um you know there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there i got <laughs> i got the whole megillah going on in my morning practice um, Got it. I, I ask myself sacred questions to start my practice. Uh, I invite an intention into my awareness um, for the day, just for today. What do I want to be just for today? Um, and I allow that to, you know, to really get clear. You know, oh, maybe that's kindness. Maybe that's compassion. Maybe it's forgiveness. Uh, maybe it's clarity. Um, maybe it's making bold moves. Whatever it is, just for today. I don't have to do it tomorrow, and I don't have to like limit myself in any other way. Um, but I'll, you know, allow that. I'll invite an intention into myself, and then I let it go. You know, I planted the seed. I don't need to be paying a lot of attention to it. Um, then I go into my um, my practice, which is about a half hour of mantra meditation. And um, as soon as I come out, as soon as I come out of every single meditation, I have a I have a pad and a piece of paper, uh, piece of paper and a pen, and I write down five things that I I'm, that I have gratitude for in that moment. Um, you know, I did that today. Um, today I was like, you know, really grateful that I, that I am a host of a, a Hay House radio show. Um, I was grateful that I get to hang out with Peaches the Buddha Princess, my LA rescue, you know, who teaches me in every moment, resist nothing, and you'll receive unconditional love. Um, I, was, uh, I was grateful that I was going to be talking to you uh, today because yeah. we were trying to like make that happen. And I was like, yeah, today's that day. Um, <laughs> I was grateful for the fact that I lived in Southern California because it was sprinkling a little this morning, but I was like, it's sprinkling, you know, like big deal. You know, we live in the most beautiful weather condition, you know, on the planet. And I was grateful that Game of Thrones is over and that, I, and that, um, <laughs> and that killing Eve has begun. So like those, I, I love those, killing Eve. So they don't have to be like the most profound things, you know, like I worship my mother and father. They can be like, what am I grateful for? And if I do that every single day, um, then I know that's in me. Then I typically take like a, uh, an hour hike with peaches and it's during that walk, you know, where we're both in silence and I <laughs> all those things, you know, that I, that I, I love I, that you had to say we're both in silence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if she sees another dog, maybe she'll bark, but otherwise we, we spend a lot of time in silence. So yeah, gratitude is a really important, um, part of my day. You know, it's sort of like a meta meditation, you know, if you're breathing in meta and then flowing, you know, loving kindness out to different aspects of your life, um, whether it's your teachers, your friends, people you have a grievance with, you know, all sentient beings, whatever that is. Um, and it doesn't have to always be like, you know, a woo-woo kind of thing. But, you know, when you suddenly realize that we're just conduits, we're conduits of energy, you know, stuff comes in, stuff goes out. And so can we allow things to really just flow through us like a hole in the flute can we allow that or do we always have to like put our stamp on it and make it something else and um 
Well, look, on that note, I think it goes a little bit to what you were talking about with the Chris Christie stuff. You know, we're all conduits. We're all energy. A little bit what happened to you at that first, like, Deepak Chopra retreat is, like, like you said, all of a sudden you were letting go of all this kind of heaviness that sat there because it's like, you know, you were cleaning your pipes. Like, the, the, ner- the, like the wires were actually firing versus probably being stepped on and turned and frayed. And, you know, when you talk about Chris Christie and he says, like, whatever, I say whatever comes to my mind – it's, you know, you talk about this a lot of like there's 70,000 or more thoughts that come into you. Talk about a little bit of like when we have this ability to kind of clear this channel, when you have the ability to make these conduits fire better than they've ever fired before, how that also does affect the thoughts that you're actually pulling down. Because if there's that many coming into your subconscious, I mean, they probably are vast as far as from good to bad, negative to positive. I'm sure the whole polarities are there. So talk about that ability of being able, of what you start actually pulling down that actually, even before you even choose to let it go to your mouth, the ones that you even choose to let come here to even give it the time to think about, is it worth coming out of my mouth? Yeah, well, see, that's like a really, that's so brilliant. You know, we're, if we would, you know, think like, we're just like our, our devices, you know, they have Wi-Fi. So they're pulling in, you know, texts and emails and phone calls, and like all that stuff. They're just receivers. Yeah. And so, you know, suddenly, you know, you, you do it. You like you turn on your phone in the morning or, or open it up and suddenly it's like, you know, 25 emails go. Yeah, and, all day. <laughs> you know, and then like every single, you know, if you have all the alerts and, and stuff like that, you're getting all these Instagram likes and all these other, you know, types of interactions. I, you know, just like we can put our devices ringer on silent so that no matter what's coming in, it's not going to be beeping or buzzing or, or doing whatever. We have that same ability. And I, I believe that meditation is uh, that sort of like the platform that, um, you know, and I consider myself someone who, um, you know, has a dedicated practice. And I would recommend to people that they have a dedicated practice, you know, bookends of their day. Everyone doesn't have to sit down for 30 minutes in the morning, in the afternoon, but everyone should meditate just a little bit of stillness and silence um, to start their day so that you have a little space. Maybe you're more creative. Maybe you're a little more patient. Maybe you're a little kinder. Um, and at the end of the day, also, everything we've absorbed, we've been like, we've absorbed so much stuff over the course of, of a day. And we've made judgments. We've held grievances. We've gotten angry. We've, you know, cut people off, you know, in our mind or, or in our cars. Um, you know, there's like all that stuff. And so I think that second meditation of the day is a, it's like a release valve. It's an opportunity for us to, to let go. And I, and I would recommend that everyone, even if it's only five minutes, that you um, take the time. Even if you're like sitting in your mom van, waiting in the mom line <laughs> to pick up your kid, you know, before that kid like suddenly jumps into the van with his three friends, maybe for those five minutes, you just close your eyes and, and watch your breath. You know, I mean, just as something as simple as that. And that allows the bookends to really, you know, hold you together. Because if you don't, then you come into your dinner hour with all that stuff that you've absorbed. We've all done that. We've all gone home and said, you wouldn't believe what happened today. And then we're like, and like, right. And when we even like two hours later, we're, we're watching TV and suddenly it's like, and therefore, and, and one more thing, you know, about that, you know, just like no one really wants to hear it. Uh, and then you bring it, in, <laughs> then you bring it into your sleep regimen, you know, and then you bring it into your dreams and then you wake up the next morning and you're starting off, you know, already, you know, in, in, in not the best space. And so I think it's, it, this all comes down to vibration. And we know that we're better when we're calmer. 
we know that we are going to be a little more thoughtful when we're coming from a place of, of stillness. And again, we don't have to, you know, you've seen Eckhart Tolle where he sometimes chews on an answer for like three minutes before he actually speaks. We don't all have to go there. We can if we want. I mean, he's a, he's a master of the present moment. Um, but we can just really, when we meditate, we cultivate our ability to witness. It's not just to witness someone else talking at us. It's to witness our thoughts as well. And if we're going to have 70,000, we can witness which one of those push our buttons, which one of those spark us to react, which, and then work on that. You know, just because you suddenly hear something doesn't mean you have to vomit it out. And I think that, you know, we all know what being mindless is. We all know what being <laughs> thoughtless is. We, 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 we do it all the time and we've done it for, for decades. Um, but, you know, being mindful, you know, doesn't necessarily mean, oh, mindful meditation or, or any of that, or it just means paying attention. Mm-hmm. Let me just pay a little more attention. And if we show up and meditate twice a day, we will naturally cultivate our ability to witness. So even though there's 70,000 thoughts, there's no way we can even grapple with 70,000. We're paying attention to five, you know, or three. They're coming. But if I can turn my internal ringer on silent, just like I do with my phone, then they're not all pushing me in a thousand directions. I've really cultivated my ability to witness and things start coming to me in slow motion. And I get to choose. This comes back to your choice moment. I get to choose. You know what? That's really not adding value to this moment. I'll deal with that later. Oh, you know, this one, this is really something that I think could add value to that moment. So I think it informs your speech. I think it influences your decision-making. And, and this is all scientifically proven as our executive function, our prefrontal cortex and, you know, our insula and our, you know, our, our you know, all the different aspects, um, our gyrus, all, all these different aspects of our brain. Um, we know that by meditating, we are raising that vibration. We know we're becoming better choice makers. Yeah. And if I could just be a better choice maker than I was six months ago, even. You know, um, like I don't succumb to this thing in that moment or, you know, I mean, this is how people with, who are coping with addiction, you know, introduce a pattern interrupt and you have an opportunity for a better choice. If there's no break in the action, you're just going to do the condition thing that you've always done. And I'd be surprised if Chris Christie didn't, you know, say what he thought 30 years ago and he's reinforced it so many times. You know, and this isn't about Chris Christie. He's just a perfect, you know. But I, I love that he's, he's entered our podcast. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time to talk about our next Den Talks Live. These have been so great. You guys are going to be obsessed with this next one. It's July 26, a Friday night at the La Brea location. We have Paul Selig. He is considered to be one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. He's written some incredible books. He does not do events very often, but he is going to be here to not only talk about what channeling is, to dive into that energy, but he's also going to do a reading for us. So how cool is that to be in the room and be able to have a chance to talk to someone who can channel? This is huge. It's rare. It's going to be amazing. Join us. Again, that's Friday, July 26. Typical Dentalks Live. You get your Q&A portion. There'll be fun goodies and giveaways as well and a chance to mingle at the end. We can't wait to see you. Go to dentalkspodcast.com and reserve your spot. But you have like, you have, you actually have a really nice, I mean, you give so many throughout the whole book of Sacred Powers, but you do have a really nice one about with breathing and kind of holding it and just noticing how you feel that helps with kind of bringing you back a little bit into the present moment that I really like a little bit of a stop the pattern 
because I mean, that's always a question for me too, which I think you just answered also is, you know, with those people you just see kind of spiraling or they're in it, like that, like you were talking about that conversation, you come home, it's an energy, you can feel it. Like you're, it's like there, I've been there. I, I can feel when my practice isn't as strong, I feel myself getting into it because I do a million things. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It's almost like the, you know, the energy is riding you versus you riding the energy. And it's sometimes you're like, well, what can I give to those people who aren't even thinking like this yet or aren't even in a place where they know they can change that or they can break the pattern? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, um, again, there's asking that question after the fact, you know, Ojas or Ama. Right. Uh, and there's asking that question in the moment. And, um, you know, a technique that I, you know, I originally started teaching it to Marines um, because I figured I didn't want to use the word meditation. Wow. I didn't want to you know, get involved. And then I've, then I've taught it to, to cops. Um, and, you know, the practice is, uh, is 16 seconds. And uh, I've taught we it now. We all have 16 seconds. Right. Everywhere, right. Everyone has 16 seconds. And I've taught it to hundreds of thousands of people who either never thought they'd meditate or, you know, were, were, were open to introducing a pattern interrupt. But essentially, if you can just take a long, we could do it right here for everybody, you know, who's, who's, who's part of this conversation. If, um, if right now you could just close your eyes and through your nose, take a long, slow, deep breath in and watch that breath as it goes down to your belly. And when it gets there, hold it and witness it and observe it and keep watching it and then release it and watch it as it moves back up. Keep witnessing, watch it flow out of you. Keep exhaling, keep holding that breath out and keep watching it, witnessing it, observing it as it dissipates into the ether. And now open your eyes and breathe normally. So that was about 16 seconds. I love it. And in those 16 seconds, no matter who you are, if you were playing along, and Tal, you were playing along. I was. <laughs> so thank you. Um, if you were playing along, you weren't in the past, you weren't in the future. In that moment, you were fully present. Now, you may have leaped, the second you're done, leaped into the future again or back into the past, but at least you got that break. And if you do it four times, it's a minute. If you do it 20 times, it's five minutes. There are people who've built their entire meditation practices based on that. But imagine just doing that, not closing your eyes while you're stuck in traffic. I mean, how many times have we all been you know, trying to cross LA um, or I'm stuck on the 405 um, or on permahold with customer service and you just like want to strangle somebody, you know, <laughs> so, like you're in a conversation and you're not being heard um, or you're at like a dinner table or holidays and like relatives are poking you or pushing your button. And if you can just like come into that, it just puts a little bit of space, just the teeniest little, like a sliver of space between what would have been your conditioned response and most likely not a great choice. And maybe there's an opportunity. You could do this as you, when, I'm, when I approach my refrigerator at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and I'm going, I figure I've got some Ben and Jerry's dairy-free <laughs> in the freezer, you know, I'll open the fridge and I'll do that 16 seconds and I'll say, you know what, maybe not for today, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow I may eat the entire pint, but you know what, for today it's helped me with my emotional eating. So I think it can really help us just pause the pause that refreshes you know just like in that moment make a better decision well you had such a beautiful metaphor that i love that you were talking about music and like how music wouldn't exist and you wouldn't even love what came out of it if it wasn't for the pauses in between it just it the space between the notes and i was like a little staccato action right <laughs> But I was like, it was such a genius metaphor. I was like, oh, that's so smart. And it made me remember, and this is so dumb, but like I was just, every year I go away and I go to like a nice resort where I go away by myself, no kids, no husband. And I just, 
do nothing. I meditate and I just do nothing. And obviously it's a very beautiful resort that's built in a thing. And when I was leaving to go to the airport and we'd left the gates of the resort, I said to the woman driving me, I'm like, I just looked around and I go, it's so beautiful. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I didn't understand why she looked at me like I was crazy. And I thought about it. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess traditionally, like when I actually like brought myself back to it, I'm like, oh, I guess traditionally this isn't technically what some would describe as beautiful. But in my mind, because I, I was still very much in a great space, I'm like, it was beautiful. Everything about it was beautiful. How people were walking in the streets was beautiful. The dog barking on the corner was beautiful. Like I just loved it so much. And it was like an interesting moment because the woman was like, huh? <laughs> like, no, no, where you were just at was beautiful. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, this is also beautiful. <laughs> and it's true. Like you miss a lot when you don't have the ability to kind of see it in the moment. And, and I would have to assume, since you were alone, no one was with you, but I would have to assume that during that period of time, you were falling in love with yourself. During that period of time, you were feeling really, really connected, you know, to nature and to oneness. Um, because like when we're feeling really, really good, when our self-esteem is being nourished and when we're like feeling like, hey, I'm pretty awesome and life is really great. We're not going like, oh my God, can you believe the shoes she's wearing? You know, like <laughs> we're not like suddenly, we're not looking for the flaws. Like everything's gorgeous and we're finding that one little flaw in the moment. But when we're really at a high vibration where clearly you were in that space, um, you're like, wow, why would I let the 1% or the half of 1%, which may not be amazing, you know, get in the way of all this magnificence? Oh my God, it's so funny. So I remember I was once... I went on a trip with, a, it was a couple of couples and it was a lot of negative people. There were a lot of comedy writers. So that tends to be, you know, what happens. I mean, and it got to the point, it was like one complaint about it after another. It was like, and this, and I finally was just like, I just looked at the person. I was like, God, life must be so difficult for you. It's like all I said, because I didn't know what, and, and, it, the fun, and then of course, because they're funny, he looked at me, he goes, it really is. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's like if you're going to look to find, like you said, if the 1% of like that negative is going to become your 99%, oof, like it's just exhausting thinking about it. It really is. I want you to talk a little bit also about, you know, we've kind of jumped a little bit with different themes you talk about in your book because there's so many amazing ones. And everyone, if you should really read and get all the paths linearly because it is, it will really change and really help you. I know, especially anyone listening to this, is on their journey. And so this will really help you. But, you know, in your, in the first path, which is, you know, the divine path of one, which is so important, you know, you talk a lot about energy and shared energy. I mean, and you should talk about a little bit in general, which is we are all one and we're all, you know, we have our own individuality from, let's say our DNA, but energetically we all come from the same place. And that's where you can sense the beauty and all that, like kind of how we were all talking about it, because, and I kind of want to take it a few steps further. You know, we were talking about energy and giving energy and raising our vibration and how it makes us make different decisions, but also talk about just the idea of how when you raise your own vibration, because we are all connected, you are actually inherently raising the vibration of others. So that's also indirectly another way you can probably, I'm guessing, help someone. You know, when we, we talk about this all the time, you're like, what do you do with these people who can't see it or aren't ready or aren't ready to accept? Talk about that version too of just kind of going inward and kind of, you know, fixing up your machine, how that automatically kind of fixes how everyone else's machine works too. Yeah, well, uh, 
we're vibrational beings. We're energetic beings. We know that. That's not we were cooked out. That's, that's, you know, that's physics. And so we have to, and we all, you know, we all know that we're vibrating at a certain level. We know that we're, if we're high, we're drunk, um, or, or sick, um, or tired, or lazy, or angry, um, you know, or, or, or feeling wounded emotionally or physically, we're definitely not showing up as our best version. So we would have to say like, or if we're not paying attention, if we're not fully present, we would have to say like, our vibration is just lower. It, it just is, right? Um, and, you know, so let's like, let's assume that to be correct. And when we're like in that towel state where we're like, you know, on the beach and everything's beautiful and we're seeing the, the oneness or the beauty in all things, you know, that's actually a higher state of consciousness. You know, a lot of people think that higher states of consciousness come to you when you're meditating. Um, the higher states of, you know, the fourth state, you know, there's obviously our waking state, our dreaming state, our sleeping state. But, you know, the, the fourth state of consciousness that the Maharishi Mahesh uh, Yogi uh, talked about, transcendence consciousness. And, you know, part of that, I'm sorry, I'm, there's this like beautiful red tail hawk that's like swirling. I was going to say, I can hear something gorgeous. <laughs> swirling above me. Um, so in this fourth state of consciousness, uh, this is where we start to see um, union in, in all things and God, whatever our definition or expression of that is, in all things. Um, uh, we're truly, we've amped up our witnessing awareness where we don't see ourselves as separate from something. You know, just like in this conversation, I don't feel separate from you. We're, we're like, we're this one being. In Sanskrit, the, the term for that is Advaita, A-D-V-A-I-T-A, which means non-dualism. You know, this was talked about for thousands of years. All yoga is based on that. The Bhagavad Gita talks about it. Um, you know, the Quest Jewel of Discrimination by Adi Shankar. You know, all these, you know, the, this is historical and thousands of years old. Uh, non-dualism. We would call it oneness. You know, non-dual is, is one. And so we know that this concept of energetic entrainment is, is real. Um, we know it in our society, you know, someone's, you know, Beyonce's on the cover of something and suddenly within, I don't know, within two weeks, everyone's wearing that or buying that thing. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, Ariana Grande comes out with like a, a hit song and, you know, within a couple of weeks, everyone's singing that song. So those people, you know, we could call them influencers, but they're entraining us energetically. They're moving us to that conversation. And highest vibration always wins. You could watch it if you're watching like four ducks floating on the water. If one suddenly turns this way, if that's the stronger vibration or energy, they're all going to turn and go back. We see it with dolphin pods. We see it with Canadian geese. We see it with, you know, um, pelicans. Um, we, we see it with like so many different birds, especially flying in formation and always staying in that formation. It's not because they're rigid, it's because there's someone at the front with a high vibration and everyone is being entrained. And so we can tell if we walk into a room, if suddenly it's like, I don't want to say dark energy, but if it's a little creepy or if it's not like, oh, I don't really feel comfortable. I don't know why, but I don't really feel comfortable in here. Or we walk into a room and we go, my people, you know, we've all felt that, you know, you know, the difference between yeah. like bring a space. So energy is real and the energetic flow is real. And the person with the highest vibration is going to stand out. If everyone's at the certain lower vibration, just like the person with the lowest vibration, 
is always going to stand out. They've done studies on this in the workplace where, where uh, women who work together, ultimately, if they work really, really close for like 12-hour days and they do that for, for, for many months, even years, they all start to have their menstrual cycle at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's cycling. So ritam, the Sanskrit word for rhythm, you know, we're all tuned in to the lunar rhythms, to the circadian rhythms, to the tidal rhythms, to the seasonal rhythms. And we're all actually tapped in at a much more subtler level to our own personal rhythms, our heartbeats, the way we breathe, the way our mannerisms and the way we act. And so this is not for you to like walk into a room and go like condescendingly, like ah, low vibration, another low vibration, <laughs> loser, loser. Um, but if we can just say, I'm not going to worry about other people's vibrations. I'm just going to be in that state of witnessing awareness, that higher state, cosmic consciousness, some people call it, in my waking state. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be present. I'm not going to be thinking about where I just left or what I'm going to do next. Let me just fully drink this in. You know, this actually like evolves into what we would call in our culture charisma. You know, why is, why is Oprah you know, charismatic. Why are some people, why is Barack Obama charismatic? You know, why are certain people, you know, the Q factor, they call it on in TV. Why do some people, you know, why is Kim Kardashian so charismatic? You know, when you start to realize these people are, you know, high vibration people, hmm. they're fully present. And so what happens is you look at that, it's very attractive. It's magnetic. And so naturally, inherently, without, innately, without you even doing anything, suddenly you gravitate towards that higher vibration. And so if you're the one who steps into the room, you know, heavily meditated, or if you're the one who's really fully present, paying attention, and everyone else is whining or complaining about this or, or thinking about all the stuff they're going to do, there's like an energetic component that you've suddenly introduced into the space. And suddenly people are like, hey, look at that person. They're like, I don't know what it is, but they're like highly attractive. And I don't mean, you know, in a, in yeah. a physical beauty sense, but, you know, that's what, you know, we're doing. Maybe they're, you know, when we see someone with a lot of self-confidence, well, that's derived ideally from self-love. And like, I look at someone who's really so comfortable with themselves. It's like, I want some of that. I want, a, I want that. And so naturally in that moment, we give ourselves permission to, you know, we don't know what's happening. We don't, you know, it's happening at some unconscious level, but suddenly our vibration comes up. So I think we can do this just so easily with our own practice, taking our own practice to a higher level. So if you've never meditated in your life, just practicing 16 seconds, just coming into the present a little bit more. And there are ways to do that. You know, in Sacred Powers, I talk about like set your phone to just have an alarm that goes off every hour. So at least you have 16 seconds of a pattern interrupt every hour. You're going to be more creative. You're going to be more present. Maybe you'll then take a deep breath. Maybe you'll blink because you've been staring at your screen for an hour. Um, Maybe you'll suddenly stretch. You'll suddenly bring yourself back into the here and now. And in doing that, you'll be raising your vibration. And it's so interesting because you were saying people with high vibrations are attractive and not, again, not a physical way, but just it's an energetic way and people are drawn to them. And, you know, you do talk a lot about intention and manifestation. And to me, I, I feel like that's like the missing part. A lot of people don't realize it's not just anyone creating a mood board or being like, this is what I want. 
it's like if you raise your vibration, I talk about this all the time with people, Mike, if you have a strong vibration, you're actually creating a path for that to actually come in. It can find you. It can actually then enter you. And that's why a lot of people at a higher vibration, people think their lives are easy because, but it's not that they're easy. They've just created this like clear runway path for all this shit to work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we know that like pheromones are real, that if you're like chemically or aromatically a certain way, like someone's finding you attractive in that moment, you know, it's all about chemistry. But vibrationally, you know, these are like, you know, energetic pheromones. They're like vibrational yeah. pheromones where the, suddenly it's like people are, you know, and maybe dogs can see this because humans can't, um, but maybe it's sort of like, Oh, they're sort of like they're leaving breadcrumbs, the, the path to like my higher version of myself. How I want to actually, because you were about to say it in the beginning and then we kind of moved off and it's just such a fun story. So I want to talk about it before we kind of lose you. Um, so after you, you, you went to India and then we kind of moved off of it, but you went to India on search for Anadi, who was the greatest guru who can basically write down past life's future, future, what has going to happen in your future and what you're doing now, basically your entire lifespan. So talk about that a little bit because it is crazy. And that's when we kind of went off on the, are you an extreme human? <laughs> because it's kind of amazing. You're like, this is what I'm going to do. And you found him. Yeah, I was, I was actually in search for, um, in my, in my first butterfly moment where I, um, where I truly connected with that homeless man living in a cardboard box. Um, he sort of like sparked something inside of me. And, you know, when I was at the, um, at that retreat in Oxford, England, um, Deepak mentioned that there's, you know, um, a guy, he's like, uh, he said, he's a palm reader. And I was like, Oh, you mean like, uh, read your palms. And he was like, no palm leaf, like the leaf of a palm tree. And I was like, you mean this giant leaf of a palm tree? And he goes, he said, just, I'll hook you up, you know, uh, with someone who can help guide you. So, you know, that guiding <laughs> took about four months, like we were wandering around. And I went as far as uh, up to the Himalayas, you know, Rishikesh and higher than that, Dharamsala, you know, really, really searching um, for that answer. And I went like way, 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 way down to the, to the very southern tip. And, you know, uh, you know, Israel's the size of New Jersey. Well, India like the size of huge. It's giant. Um, and so, um, you know, I traveled truly tens of thousands of miles in search of the Nadi, the palm leaf reader. And, um, and of course I found him in a very cooped out way. There's no, like, wasn't a sign like Nadi. Um, <laughs> and, but I, you know, and you know, I, I look fairly distinctive, especially when I'm in a, a culture like, you know, the Philippines or, or India where I've spent a lot of time. It's like me. Um, with it's like me. My, right. My, my white skin and my, my, you know, blue green eyes are not like the typical. So I do stand out um, more as like um, an entertainment for people than, <laughs> than um, as something scary. And so, you know, I countered this guy and we, again, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Tamil. This is in Southern India. They don't speak Hindi there. They speak Tamil. And, um, but we connected on this. We just, it was like one of those things. We gravitated through a crowd. There must've been hundreds of people in this marketplace. And we just kept like moving towards each other, moving towards each other, moving towards each other. And, you know, I said to him, Nadi. And he was like, that I, you know, that I understand. So we sat there and we had some tea and he was like, Nadi, Nadi. And I was like, you're the Nadi. He goes, no, no, no. You know, <laughs> so I was like, move as if he's driving. Right. So I was like, all right. Take me to your naughty. 
Um, and we drove for, you know, about six hours, um, ultimately going into the jungle um, and um, near Swami Malai, this, this teeny little speck of a town um, in the jungle. Um, it's actually the place where they created the, um, the, the bronze casting, um, wax, wax casting for bronze thousands of years ago. And that, that's what they do there um, in the jungle. And so um, he guided me to this uh, Nadi Jyotish. And it's this guy who for, I don't know, 17 generations of his family's lineage, um, the story, the story goes like this. Supposedly Shiva, at the moment that the world was created, said to his 12 disciples, they seem to carry lots of, you know, same amount of disciples as in Christianity, um, or 12 tribes of Israel, uh, said to his 12 disciples, write down every single thing that will ever happen in the world from this moment forward. God. So, they, so they wrote it all down, um, uh, you know, and they like chiseled it on rocks, you know, things like that. But over time, um, you know, those rocks faded and they realized, you know what? Not everyone cares. So how about we'll only write down what will, you know, the past, present, and future lives. So we're talking about past lives, you know, thousands of years going back, um, and future lives going forward, and what's going to happen to you in this life. So let's write it down. But instead of doing that, we'll write it down using um, oil and um uh, and some and some plants, and we'll mush it together, you know, from like lamp oil, and we'll turn it. We'll write it in this black soot on these hardened, dried out palm leaves, and so they have them stacked. And there are twelve disciples. So as you travel through India, you don't know where these are, but I think it's down to four now. There's a Nadi of the north, the south, the east, and the west, and so they have written down the information. Every single thing that has happened, past lives included, the moment of your death, when you will die, how you will die, everything that will happen in this lifetime and what will happen in the next lifetime. And typically you go there, you, the, you put your thumbprint down, the Nadi goes into a back room with that thumbprint, meditates on it for like an hour, and then comes back with a stack of palm leaves, with okay. sort of like a string connecting them. And so when I was there, he was like, so you're the David G who lives in Paris with two children? I'm like, no. He's like, uh, so you're the David G who um, lives in uh, Tokyo and, um, you know, your father is um, 100 years old? I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, you're the David G who, and then he just started describing my life. You know, your parents' names are this, your wife's name is that. I'm like, Go on, Nadi. Now, of course, they only speak Tamil, and I only speak, you know, I didn't, at the time I didn't speak Hindi, and I, didn't, I never even heard of Tamil. So there was a translator who, like, translated the Tamil into English and then translated my English into Tamil. So wow. I was just, like, gazing into his eyes as he was reading the leaf. And every once in a while, he would say something, and I would go, you're amazing, Nadi. And then he would grunt back something to me to the guy and the guy would say to me he says he's just reading the leaf he's not he's not clairvoyant or anything like that but there was like there's like this one like super powerful moment where like he was saying you know as a as a as a, as a three-month-old you had this operation um your father was married um two times i said no no natty natty my, my father was married three times he's actually married to his third wife right now my mother died and the second wife died but he's married 
to this to this to this woman and the naughty was like no no two times and i'm like oh i have to start quite if, if, if you're wrong about this you're probably wrong about a whole bunch of things and so months later months later like 10 months later um my father's wife passed away and in that moment it was revealed that they were married by a ship's captain and it wasn't a legal marriage. Whoa. So he really was only married twice. And I was like, the naughty was right. You know, like months, like almost a year later. Um, but this, you know, uh, usually you go in and you ask like for three aspects of your life. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your household. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's career. Um, but, um, I got there like really, really early and I was like, bring it all, Nadi. I'm from Queens, the extremist. <laughs> Don't stop. And I thought I wanted all that information. Um, but that was actually, you know, the, the, the saddest day of my entire life because to be told what I did in a past life with no memory of it, not just good things, but horrible things as well. Um, learning the moment of my death really just got me inspired to get busy. Um, and I don't live my life based on what the naughty told me, but stuff happens. And, I, and I'll go like, oh, the naughty said that would happen. So, you know, at the time I was deeply involved in mergers and acquisitions. And the naughty said I would be an international uh, meditation teacher. And I was like, uh, you know, I've been really seriously meditating now for, you know, about five months. So I doubt that's really going to happen. And he said, and you'll be an international author. And I'm like, I don't buy it, you know, but I got home. And the book that I had written in my past life, actually in this incarnation um, with my partner, um, was a book on mergers and acquisitions. And I got home and there were two copies of that book in Mandarin and a royalty check. And I was like, international author. How'd that even happen? You know, and here I am a whole bunch of years later. Many books later. You know, and, you know, my books have been translated into 20 languages. I travel the world, teach meditation. And so, like, how would that, you know, how, how would that have, as well as so many other things. So again, I don't live my life according to that, but it was, so if you're meant to see the naughty, you see the naughty. If you're, so not, just, if you're not meant to see the naughty, then you, then you end up, you know, going to Book of Mormon instead that weekend. And then, you know, <laughs> that, that was that. I have a couple questions on that. So he tells you about all of your past lives, some good, some bad. So you've actually now... So what is your take? I mean, there's so many different philosophies on karma, philosophies on past lives. What is your take now that you've been told that and you know what you're doing now? What do you see as like either the connection through them? Um, I believe in predeterminism, which means everything has been written down. I believe in free will because I don't know where it's written. I believe there's a script, you know, a treatment for your life, for my life, for everyone's life. I believe it's, it's already been written down. It says right now I'm going to pick up this pen. It says right now I'm going to put down that pen. It says, you know, it, it said that we were going to have this conversation today. I believe in all predeterminism, but I believe in free will. And so I believe that since I don't know what the script says, I get to choose all of my actions. They may be written down. Someone may be reading that. I don't know who that is. And depending on what your belief system is, whatever, you know, God or Jesus or, you know, Allah, you know, whatever that may be, or, or Ganesha, you know, pick, pick, that, pick, that de pick your deity. But my personal philosophy is that, that everything is predetermined. But that doesn't mean that I don't have free will. 
So someone else knows exactly what I'm going to do, some divine essence. But uh, since I don't, I get to choose. So um, at the end of your Nadi reading, the Nadi says, you can spend the next nine months. Here are 12 temples. Go there, pray, circle the temples, live your life, do good acts, um, give to charities, do these things. They call them the remedies. And so what may have been inscribed could be translated a little differently. Um, but um, the concept of, of these teachings is, that, um, is a predetermined aspect. And again, this doesn't take away your free will. Right. You know, right now I can say, oh, I think I'll have a sip of my almond cappuccino. I believe that's my choice. <laughs> but, you know, the, the teachings, these teachings, the Nadi would say, well, it was written someplace that you were going to do that. But the fact that I didn't know makes it my life. I mean, it's so interesting because it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about learning and using meditation to learn how to actually make those choices. Yeah, right. You know, so maybe I don't have the, the choice to determine when I die and how I die. But maybe I do have the choice to determine how I live up until that moment. So now that you know how you're going to die and when you're going to die, do you feel like it would benefit everyone to know their, their timeline? No, because I think we would then use that as an excuse. You know, everyone would be now be like holding that thing up. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know right. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. So when I got home, um, you know, came back to, you know, left there after five months and third, 29 days. Uh, came back home and um, a lot of other stuff happened there. But I'm, I'm driving in the car with my wife and I'm, I'm driving on um, Long Island, actually, in, in New York. <laughs> And I'm on the Long Island Expressway. And I'm going about 95. And she's like, would you please just slow down? And I was like, I know I'm not going to die. Why, why should I slow down? And she said, but you, the Nadi didn't tell you if you were going to be maimed or crippled in a car crash. Did he? And I was like, uh, no, we actually never had that conversation. <laughs> and she goes, well, then <laughs> get to the speed limit. So, you know, because I didn't ask every single question about every single moment about every single thing. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 it's, it's broad strokes to a certain, to a certain extent. Um, the sad thing for me wasn't, wasn't finding out when I was going to die or how, how I was going to die. The sad thing for me truly was finding out um, uh, things that I had done in a previous life that I certainly wouldn't be proud of. And that hurt my heart so much because, you know, I was like, I, I wouldn't do that. That's not my, it's not my jam. You know, it's not the kind of person that I am to do this or to do that. And they were like, well, guess what? You know, in, in this past life, here's what you did. And in this past life, here's another thing that you did. And they, those weren't, you know, life defining in those spaces, but I was so sad because I didn't have a memory of it. And I just felt, gee, I, I, I was just, I'm so sorry, but who do I apologize to? Someone who's been dead for 500 years or, you know, something along those lines. Um, when you increase your timeline, as far as, you know, when you say every moment's brought me to here, so when you increase the timeline past the birth of this lifetime, 
do you see a connection with all that too? Like some believe you live every type of life in order to get to the point of being a totally evolved soul because at that point you've experienced sadness, hardship, being the murderer, being murdered, being like whatever it is, like all the different versions of the polarities. You know, I, th I think that stuff flows through, but I think we just probably get a little more intuitive. So maybe we don't make the same mistake that we made. You know, if you killed someone in a past life, maybe you don't kill someone in this life because it feels so wrong. Right. If you, um, you know, if you were a mean person in a past life, maybe you're, you know, maybe you're not as mean in, in, in this life. I, you know, I believe in intuition. I believe, you know, uh, in, you know, that we sort of like sense, I call them native energies, you know, so we can sort of like sense Nah, that doesn't feel right. Where'd that come from? It wasn't something my parents taught me, and it wasn't something I learned in school, but it just doesn't feel right. So as I move through this world, I think I'm informed. I think we are all are informed by past lives, but I'm much more interested, you know, uh, what happened to someone in like 2005 than in, you know, 1805. Um, right. That means more to me. You know, a lot of my friends are past life regressionists, and I've, I've done that, and I've explored that, and I've experienced that as well. And... Um, and I honor it, but I believe that I'm not here to make up for what I did in a past life. I'm here to, to, to make up for what I did 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm here to make up for what I did six months ago. And so it's interesting. It's certainly whenever I'm sitting around feeling, you know, acting lazy, because, you know, I can been, I'm a professional TV watcher. I watch like four hours of TV a day. I can too. Right. So like, you know, I'm watching Real Housewives. I'm watching the Kardashians. Me too. Me too. Oh my God. You know, one of my greatest teachers is Camille right now. She's like, she, she teaches me every day. Tell Camille, you. Camille, I love it. Um, I mean, by the way, you and I could talk for a whole nother hour if you really want to start dissecting all of that. <laughs> you know, but what I feel is like when I'm, when I'm acting lazy, where I'm like when, you know, when I'm told like take out the garbage or like walk peaches or, you know, do something else like, write this or do that or um and i'm like nah i'm just gonna hang out here and watch you know a few more episodes of hana you know or something <laughs> like that it's like no guess what clock's ticking i gotta get up so you know just knowing that i'm not gonna live forever because most of us we were just what up until that moment i was of course living my life like i'll be that guy who lives to 120 i don't have to worry about anything right. i'll deal with it when i'm 80 you know, I'll deal with it when I'm 60, I'll deal, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, no, clock's ticking, get busy, let's make stuff happen. Step into your power, own your impact. And I don't think you have to know your death date. I think we all can just remind ourselves when we're feeling like really, really slovenly, you know, totally cough up, congested, and we're just like not moving. You know, after my like fifth binge, you know, it's just like, let me be productive here. I, I'm here for a reason and it wasn't, you know, honestly, I, I know it's not to, even though I adore TV, I know it's not to watch, my mission here is not to watch TV. Um, is there anyone's mission that is? I'm sure. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I used to work in TV, so I get it. I have a, a big love of television myself and spend a lot of times and I do the same argument with myself. I'm like, come on, go do something else. There's so much else you can be doing right now. But sometimes, you know what, like you mentioned Killing Eve earlier, I'm like excited for season two. Sometimes you just got to get through it. Yeah. You know, Handmaid's Tale. How yes. do I not like sit every moment waiting for Elizabeth Moss to get busy? <laughs> I started following her. You know, I just fell in love with her, you know, because of Handmaid's Tale. And that has like influenced my decision making. You know, I, I feel like, you know, Olivia Benson's living with me. I, like, I know that. You know, I feel like all these characters who are like in my life, um, 
they're, you know, they, they, they teach me, you know, they, they, they teach me, you know, just like, I don't know if you watched the most recent Kardashians where they were like in Bali and they, you know, and, and, they were, and Kim was going to the, you know, they're looking for like to spiritual healers. And so they went, they had like negative experiences going after healer, after healer, after healer. And then like after the third healer, they were like, maybe it's a language thing. Maybe we're actually looking for psychics. Oh, yeah. We're looking for psychics, not healers, because they were like massaging their kneecaps and stuff and, and doing other stuff. You know, so just, you know, we live in a cooked out world. We're all connected. And I think we transform the world by transforming ourselves. And I think, you know. Um, I mean, I think that's a brilliant statement right there. I mean, we, and that's what we were talking about before. You transform the world by transforming yourself. And I do think we all spend so much time spinning our wheels trying to change the world and not enough time spinning our wheels trying to change ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Which is like the easy part, we would think. Yeah. Hey, uh, that's inside. I don't even have to like talk to anyone. I can just know, right? Myself. Let's do your four yous, which are just four quick questions. Um, inspirational teacher for you. Inspirational teacher for me, um, you know, I love so many teachers and sure. I'm friends with so many teachers. Um, but I, I honestly, I have to say it's peaches, the Buddha princess who teaches me in every moment to resist nothing and you will receive unconditional love. Every time I start to resist, every time I start to go like, no, I know better. I always step into poop. And so she teaches me constantly just stop resisting and, and, and let love come into you. So she would have to be my, my number one pick. I love that. Um, I was going to ask you favorite documentary movie, but now I'm going to ask you your favorite reality show. Ooh, <laughs> tough. Um, honestly, it's like, uh, love it or, um, what's that? Love it or list it. Love it or list it. I mean, I'm, you and I could watch a lot of TV together. I'm addicted, to that, I'm addicted <laughs> to that show. I, I found my, I watched, you know, cause, cause they haven't just back to back to back to back. And then oh. suddenly I was like, oh my God, I've just watched five of these. Um, so oh, I yeah. love those guys. The original, the original guys. Me too. The original over number two. I like number two also, but n- number one, I'm with you. That duo. That is hilarious. I, that's my go-to channel if I don't have anything to watch like that's already on my like DVR, Apple TV or something. Then I'm like, oh, just put it on. I know there's going to be some like, it's either Love It or Listed or what's the other one I like on there? The International House Hunters. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always get so angry when they don't make the choice I want. I'm like, what are you doing? You should get that one. Um, Helpful tip for a valuable meditation. We're going to get back on serious stuff. (laughs) Helpful tip for a valuable meditation, um, that there are six stages to the meditation experience. First, there's settling. We have to just settle in and get as comfortable as possible. Second, we begin the process of witnessing. And we begin to witness. We watch either our breath or a mantra or some object of our attention. Then we start to drift. That's the third component. Everybody who meditates will drift away from whatever that object of attention is. So don't beat yourself up if you drift away. Fourth step, we start to judge ourselves. We judge the drifting. We suddenly find ourselves, oh my God, I'm in the supermarket trying to make ingredients for my, you know, is it cilantro and avocado and lime juice for my guac? You know, suddenly we're like judging the whole thing. I'm such a loser. I'm not, I'm not uh, enlightened. I'm doing it all wrong. Fifth step, surrender. Let it all go. It's okay. It's part of everything. Everyone drifts and judges. So just surrender. And then the sixth stage is um, stillness. And so that's it. As long as we all realize that we will witness, that we will settle, witness, drift, judge, 
surrender, and then experience stillness, then don't beat yourself up for any aspect of those. Just keep coming back and just be gentle with yourself. It's That's such huge advice because that's what everyone does. They judge and then they leave because they're like, I can't do it, and they don't come back. What's your favorite self-care hack? My favorite self-care hack is um, I'm also a certified yoga teacher, but I don't, I don't um, tell anyone that. Um, so um, I, I, I do about 45 minutes of yoga after, after our, our hike. Um, but my favorite self-care hack is just laying in pigeon pose for 15 minutes on both sides. Wow. And it opens your hip. I, now, it took me a while to get there, and I can, I can go you know, pretty extreme at this point. But even if you can't, just it'll open up your spine. It'll release. If you have any lower back pain, it'll release it. Um, I was like seconds from surgery, and I began that regimen a bunch of years ago, and my MRIs are like, don't show her needed discs anymore. So I would say um, it's an easy one. Just pigeon pose both sides. Start with a minute on each side, move it to three, move it to five. Ultimately, you know, just keep expanding it and keep torquing your leg and that'll keep that stretch going. That's amazing. I do cat cow in the mornings and it's changed my back too because I have a really bad back and it's like my back's never felt better. So I get that. So I'm going to have to add that in there. This has been so much fun. I know everyone stay tuned because I know you're going to do a personal practice for us, like a 10 minute practice. But thank you for spending the time. And I know you guys don't get to see it, but I got to see your lovely backyard and hear the lovely birds. I mean, it's been, it's been so great to talk to you. I have a million more questions I want to ask you, so maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, well, thank you for the beautiful work that you do at the Den. And thank, thank you, you for creating that sacred space. Um, and thanks for um, uh, inviting me and then um, being patient with me scheduling, uh, scheduling this that's how we do it here it's like you know you put it out and then you like you said you wait because it'll it happens when you wait or it doesn't and it always works out the way it's supposed to so I'm so appreciative of being able to spend this time with you and now the personal practice David G is going to lead us through a beautiful guided meditation all right um so let's all get, let's all get comfortable and um, remember, comfort is queen. So uh, at any time in the meditation, if you start to feel uncomfortable, if your leg gets numb, if your back gets sore, whatever, always keep moving towards comfort. Always keep moving towards comfort. And together, let's take a long, slow, deep breath in. And gently let that go. And let's do that one more time. Long, slow, deep breath in. And gently release that. And now just watch your breath. Just witness your breath as it flows in and as it flows back out. There's nowhere else to be. There's nothing else to do except to be right here, right now in this sacred, precious, present moment. Notice that your body is relaxing a little bit. And as that happens, notice that your mind is calming just a little bit. And notice that that swirl inside of you and outside of you is slowing down. 
Now let's ask ourselves a few sacred questions. First, let's ask, where do I see the universe in me? Where do I see the universe in me? And don't struggle for answers. Sometimes answers will flow. Sometimes there'll be no answer. Simply keep asking that question. Where do I see the universe in me? Now is a perfect time to begin your dialogue with the universe. Where do I see the universe in me? Next, let's ask, what am I grateful for? What am I grateful for? And again, just let answers flow. And feel free to follow that up with who am I grateful for? Who am I grateful for? And next, let's ask, what does my heart truly long for? Right now, in this moment, what does my heart truly long for? And if you have multiple answers, just allow one to rise to the top. And don't answer with your head, answer with your heart. What does my heart truly long for? And now simply invite an intention into your awareness. Maybe it's a step, an action step that you can take to move you closer to the fulfillment of what just bubbled to the top. Maybe it's a state of mind or a state of being. Maybe it's kindness or clarity or strength or healing. Maybe it's love or forgiveness 
or patience. Or maybe it's a way you just want to see your life unfolding. Just invite that intention into your awareness. Again, if multiple intentions are vying for attention, just keep inviting and one will rise to the top. And when that's crystallized, now invite it into your heart. Move it from the head to the heart effortlessly. Just invite it in. Feel it connect. You may want to place your hand on your heart or rest your fingers against your heart just to make that connection. Now plant that intention like a seed in the fertile soil of your heart. Feel it take hold. Feel it take root. Now raise your chest up. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. Let the universe gently kiss your soul. Bless that intention and let it go. We'll leave it up to the universe to answer. We'll leave it up to spirit to sort out those details. And now let's use the ancient Buddhist mantra. Om, ah, hum. Om, Perfection of mind. Ah, perfection of speech. Hum, perfection of heart. Om, peace of mind. Ah, peace of speech. Hum, peace of heart. Om, tranquility of mind. Ah, tranquility of speech. Hum, tranquility of heart. Om, ah, hum. Om, ah, hum. Om, ah, Hum, and feel gratitude come into your mind as you silently repeat OM. Feel gratitude come into your speech as you silently repeat AH. And feel gratitude come into your heart as you silently repeat HUM. OM. AH. HUM. Om, ah, uh, hum.
as you repeat the mantra silently to yourself, it may change. It may get louder or fainter, faster or slower. It may become jumbled or distorted. That's okay. However it changes, don't resist. And when you suddenly realize that you've drifted away from this gratitude practice, ever so gently come back to Om Aham. Gratitude of mind, gratitude of speech, gratitude of heart. Om Aham. Let's stay in the space for a few moments here. I'll watch the time. And when you hear my voice, just sit gently with your eyes closed. So let's begin. Brahmasmi, I am the universe. You can stop repeating the mantra now. 
and just allow five things that you're grateful for right now to flow through your awareness. You can actually begin by silently saying to yourself, I am grateful for, and then just finish it. I am grateful for, and just complete it. I'm grateful for an answer. And now connect the thread from your heart to someone else's heart who's suffering, struggling, or in pain. Just see a thread moving from your heart to theirs. And take a long, slow, deep breath in of gratitude. Feel it fill you. And right now, transform it in your heart to healing light and send it out on that thread, connecting your heart to theirs. Again, long, slow, deep breath in of gratitude. And as you exhale, flow it out on that thread, connecting your heart to theirs. And watch it move out as healing light. And one last time, long, slow, deep breath in. Feel your heart expand, and as you exhale, just flow it out on that thread in the form of healing light, allowing the other person to help return to the memory of their wholeness. Now take a long, slow, deep breath in and let that go. Let's do that one more time. Long, slow, deep breath in. And gently release it. And let's seal this practice by chanting the hymn of the universe, the universal vibration, Aum. Heralding our oneness, sealing the answers to the questions we asked, sealing the intention that we planted, and celebrating the power of this collective. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. Oh. When it feels comfortable, you can slowly open your eyes. You can look around at those who you share this collective consciousness with. You can place the, your palms together, raise them to your heart, bow your head just a little bit. Namaste. Ted Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter.
Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.